hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Women breadwinners, including those in same-sex relationships, face unique challenges with their personal finances, including with investing. How is personal finance different for these women and their families? And what can be done to make personal finance, especially investing, more inclusive? You're listening or watching Queer Money episode 446. And today we're joined by Carrie Shuffman, Executive Director and Head of Women's Segment at UBS. UBS recently published its 2023 Own Your Worth study that will help us answer these questions. So let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money, folks. We are trying to get more people of all different sizes, colors, shapes, and looks and persuasions into personal finance and investing. So anytime we get some rich, meaty data about how we're doing with that, we definitely want to have that topic covered on the Queer Money Podcast. So with that, we want to welcome Carrie Schiffman to the Queer Money Podcast from UBS. Thanks so much, David and John, for having me on today. Of course. So it looks like you published a study quite regularly and annually. I mean, you recently just published the 2023 Own Your Worth study. So please give us a sort of a high level overview of what that entails and what the motivation was behind it. Sure, absolutely. So for the last six years, UBS has sought to understand the unique financial needs of women so that we can be best positioned to serve them and support them on their financial journeys. We strive to help women navigate their financial lives and prepare for their financial futures. And I would say that our goal is really threefold with this research and and everything else that we do. Uh, It's to help bring more women to the financial table, to support women who are already at that financial table, and then ultimately to make that table a more inclusive place for women. And a big part of how we do that at UBS is actually through this research that we call Own Your Worth, where we actually go out and speak to and survey thousands and thousands of women. We've been doing it for many years now, as well as surveying men of all different backgrounds to better understand how women actually make financial decisions what's most important to them, and how engaged or not engaged they may be in financial matters and the reasons for their involvement or or lack thereof. And so these findings then ultimately inform our strategy, including the resources that we offer, the events that we do, the educational materials that we develop, and more, really all so that we can glean the wisdom and the insights from a significantly sized diverse pool of real women who look like and could be our clients, could be people tuning in today to determine how to best support women's financial journey. So that's really the background of how these annual Own Your Worth reports come about and and why we do them. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's really refreshing to see more of this happening because we do know that women are playing a larger role not only in making their own financial decisions, and we see more and more women entering the personal finance space and the education space, but also it seems like there's more, much more of an appetite of women who have a desire to learn this because they, in many ways, have felt out, have felt left out for a long mm-hmm. time. Yeah, and also I think you know we we think about the transfer of wealth that will happen, exactly. especially for baby boomers, and many of those women started their relationships with their spouses, and it was kind of the the stereotypical gender roles of the man took care of the finances and the woman took care of the house, and and so a lot of women didn't feel prepared. Mm-hmm or are seeing their mothers not be prepared when the wealth was transferred. And now they want that. So they do feel better prepared and making better decisions. You're exactly right. I mean, even just to kind of paint a picture, in 2020, women in the US controlled about $11 trillion in wealth. And by 2030, that's expected to be $30 trillion. So increasing oh, wow. by almost two times the amount. So the numbers are really, really clear that there is this tremendous wealth that is controlled and is on track to be controlled by women. Women are maybe inheriting, but they're also building and creating that wealth themselves. So there's a real opportunity here for us as an industry and, and really as a society to think about 
women's financial participation and, and actually take the steps to really focus on how we can increase the levels of that financial participation. Absolutely. So I think one of the fascinating things about this particular study sort of aligns with a book that we're reading by Kate Mangino that will be on the podcast late in early 2024 about the dynamic of gender roles and how they mm. are affected or not affected based on who's the primary breadwinner, I guess, in old lingo, we'd call them head of household, right? So one of the great things about this particular study that UBS did was that you included same-sex couples in the study as well. Why was that important to you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it is important for me to say from the very beginning of the work that we've been doing for the last six plus years at UBS, our fundamental belief has been that women are a population, not a segment, right? There's no, you can't take a one size fits all approach to serving women. No two women, no two investors, frankly, have the same financial needs, goals, things that keep them up at night, personal experiences and history with money. And so in thinking about how can we best serve the population of women in this country, that means a very diverse group of women, whether that's through age, race, ethnicity, profession, sexual orientation. And so for us, if we were going to look at this topic of the dynamics of women breadwinners and how they are or maybe aren't embracing their financial clout, if we were going to do a study focused on women and couples, we, of course, were going to be inclusive and focus on women in both heterosexual and same-sex couples. So that was actually just a very simple thing for us to say, of course, we're going to look at these two demographics to see if there are similarities or if there are differences, particularly as, as you were just saying, John and David, given some of those you know, traditional gender role expectations that may play out more significantly in a heterosexual couple with a husband and wife that maybe aren't as heavily or negatively impacting women in same-sex couples. So that's actually what we were trying to really get out of this, this research looking at, at same-sex couples as well. Absolutely. So there are some data that stood out for David and me that we would definitely want to highlight, but we want to give you the floor a little bit. What are some key findings from the study that, that resonated with you? Sure, absolutely. So if, if I take a step back for a moment, the goal of this research was really to understand, you know, given that women are making tremendous advances in education, labor force participation, career advancement, and, and many studies show that women are contributing more to their household incomes than ever before in history. We wanted to really focus for this latest report on that woman primary earner. Mm -hmm. Again, our prior research has looked at many different demographics of women, single women, divorced women, widowed women, married women of all different backgrounds, ages, race and ethnicity, professions. But for this specific piece, we really wanted to look at some of the demographic trends that are leading to more and more women becoming that primary earner in their household than ever before. And we wanted to understand, is that increasing financial clout translating to increased engagement in financial matters. So that was really the heart of what we were trying to uncover, the hypothesis, if you will, of this research. Mm -hmm. And what we found in terms of the key findings, just very high level, is that unfortunately, we found that women breadwinners, so women primary breadwinners, tend to be less engaged in making decisions about where their earnings are going. So both short-term and long-term financial decisions men breadwinners in their position. So we saw lower levels of engagement, lower levels of confidence, and lower levels of saying, you know, it feels natural for me to make financial decisions as the breadwinner. And of course, the question then became, why, right? Why does this dynamic exist? And, and the name of the report is Tradition, Trust, and Time. And, and those are really the three key challenges that we uncovered that are contributing to this lack of financial engagement or, or lower levels of financial engagement, I would say, compared to men breadwinners. And those three traditions, so falling into more traditional gender roles, I think one of the most telling statistics from the report is that less than half of women in heterosexual couples and about two-thirds of women in same-sex couples say they prefer being the breadwinner compared to almost 90% of men breadwinners. Right. Many women in heterosexual couples said that their friends and family just assume that their husband's are the breadwinner because of those societal, you know, stereotypes and, and gender expectations. Mm -hmm. The second was trust issues. So tension, trust, 
you know, trust issues around money, spending, embarrassment maybe on the part of the non-primary earning spouse around wishing they could contribute more. And then lastly, time, right? And I think this resonates with all of us. We're all so incredibly busy, but women breadwinners told us that they still take on more of the household and childcare responsibilities if they do have children in the home than men breadwinners. So those were kind of the three reasons, but I will say some of those were significantly less pronounced for women breadwinners in same-sex couples, particularly around those traditional gender role dynamics that we see within maybe a, a husband and wife heterosexual couple. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Right. That's one of the data points we want to talk about was that nearly two-thirds of primary earning women in same-sex couples want to be the breadwinner mm-hmm. relative to less than half or almost half of, of those in traditional or straight relationships. Why do you think that still exists? I, I think of some of the w- primary earning women in our lives who are in same sex, uh, opposite sex couples, and they seem to, of course, this is anecdotal, they seem to be very in charge of what's going on and don't seem to have any inhibitions in taking control of what go- what's going on at home. So I guess, why do you think that dynamic still persists in the general population that they're still somewhat sort of taking a back seat and letting yeah. the men still drive? Yeah, look, I think that traditional gender roles still run very deep in this country. Our research has, we've seen that bear out in the research we've done for, you know, six plus years. Now, I think that how we grew up also has a tremendous impact on us. If we saw maybe our parents falling into more traditional gender roles, we we as human beings are very much inclined to repeat what we see. It's what we know. So it's much harder to break from those traditional behaviors or the behaviors that we saw from our own parents. If we enter marriages, if we have children, as we grow up in our adult lives. So I certainly think that plays a role, societal pressures, right? I mean, I think it's really interesting that two-thirds of men who are the non-primary earners said they wished they could themselves be that primary earner. So there's pressure on both sides that I think is important. And then, you know, I also think it's really important to acknowledge the historical context here, not just for women, but for, you know, many different groups and demographics of individuals and investors who maybe haven't always felt like they had a seat at the table in the financial services industry. But, you know, for example, with for women, it wasn't until 1974 that the Equal Credit Opportunity Act was passed, which made it so that women didn't have to have a male cosigner to apply for credit or a mortgage. I mean, that was less than 50 years ago. And so I think that there's historical context to women not having equal financial footing. There's interpersonal relationship dynamics at play. There's time constraints. There's not wanting to rock the boat or cause arguments. That's another main reason we've heard many women cite for why they maybe take that that back seat. So those are just some of the things I think that are at play here. But I also think it speaks to why the numbers are higher in terms of the number of women in same-sex couples who are the breadwinner who said they prefer that role compared to women in, in heterosexual couples, maybe because some of those traditional gender expectations, stereotypical you know, thoughts or, or ideas around who should be doing what within a couple may not be so much at play when there are two women in a couple versus a, a man and a woman. So I think that contributes, fortunately, to women in same-sex couples seeming to have higher comfort levels with being the breadwinner, a higher level of it feeling natural for them to be engaged in financial decisions and in higher confidence levels as well. Right. I do wonder, you, you bring up a couple of good points. The idea of time, I'm I'm curious how many of these women have progressively become the breadwinner versus starting out as the breadwinner, the primary breadwinner, or the, the one individual who earns the most in the relationship. And if if there were some, as you brought about, traditional roles that were in play already, and then as they earned more, those roles just stuck as they started to earn more, they didn't necessarily take a larger role in making them of the financial decisions. I also do think it's, it is interesting, the point about gender roles, when you look at same-sex couples, you know, I can only speak from experience for the two of us, but it does seem like 
John and I sometimes fall into what seem to be somewhat typical gender roles when it comes to the kinds of things that we do around the house or things like that. So I'm wondering if more women who are in a same-sex relationship feel that comfortability of saying, I am going to take charge because this is not the expectation for me as a woman. I'm going to take charge. And they have learned to do that all throughout their lives. And then they get into a relationship and it's just natural for them to say, I'm going to take charge in these making these kinds of decisions. Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up a, a great point, which is that money is so deeply personal to each and every one of us, how we grew up, what money was like growing up, how our parents talked to us about it, you know, what our experiences have been throughout the course of our lives. And that can certainly then shape how we act about financial decisions and our approach to money if we do end up as a part of a couple. So I do think that there's that context there. I think it's very hard to break traditional behaviors or if you've been doing something one way for a very long time, it can be very difficult to switch, which I think speaks to that question of if maybe someone's earnings, if you know, in a heterosexual couple, the wife's earnings really all of a sudden started to eclipse the husband's, you know, later in the course of their marriage, how those other sort of roles and responsibilities might still be very much set despite that change in earning dynamics. So I, I think there's a lot a lot there in terms of all the different things that go into how we think about money, how we talk about money with our partners, if we're in a couple, how we think about handling those decisions. But the other thing that I think is really important with this is, you know, again, our research, the goal of our research is to be as inclusive as possible and to look at different demographics of women, different trends impacting women. You know, we can't do it all at the same time, but each year and, you know, every few months we focus on a different demographic. And what I often say in conversations with women as I'm talking about this research is even if you maybe aren't the breadwinner yourself now, if you're in a couple, you know, life throws us curveballs all the time. Things change. Someone may, you know, get their dream job or start and sell a company and and have tremendous success or someone might get laid off or experience, you know, job pressures or issues. And so sort of the earning capacity of a couple over the course of their lives and their marriage can change. And so I think that's where it's really important that even, you know, this is applicable and relevant for, I think, such a wide audience of, of women and of people, because you never know what might change in a given day, month or year and, and how earning status might change for yourself or for your, your family. Right. What I think is also fascinating is the, the data that you found, UBS found, that the percentage of primary earning women who say they manage household chores is considerably higher than primary earning men, which completely aligns with the data that we got from Kate's book, Equal Partners Improving Gender e- Equality at Home. It's like they're professional. If this if this story plays out, right, the woman was initially not earning as much as the man, and then eventually she starts earning more than the man. Don't, that dynamic only seems to really change in her earning power. Nothing else seems to change either at home or how they manage their, their household finances. Do you think then that it's incumbent upon the woman or the husband or the primary breadwinner or whatever? Like what's the dynamic? How do you how do you how do you propose people resolve that problem? Because I think there's not really a whole lot of education out there for that kind of dynamic change. It's kind of just the assumption that the the head of household stays the head of household and is the boss for in perpetuity. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I'm I'm definitely not a, a marriage counselor or, or therapist myself. So I, I can't speak too much to the dynamics of couples. But I do think that in the same way, it's important to talk openly about money and financial decisions. I think it's really important for couples to talk about all the different facets that contribute to their overall well-being, financial well-being being a piece of that, but also household chores, time constraints, who's doing what, how the household moves forward on a given day, whether that means paying the bills, if you have children making sure that they're cared for, that they're getting, you know, to and from school and their activities, that the house is clean, the gutters aren't clogged, you know, whatever it might be that meet that contributes to your ability to lead the life you want to live. Certainly finances is a piece of a huge piece of that, but not the only piece. It warrants, you know, open conversations. And and I know that that can be tough, but I think that's where, you know, being able to say, I have this more demanding job or I'm starting to earn more and I can't take on some of these other things. Or it's really important for me and for us as a couple that we are 
both involved in these financial decisions because they will impact us both. They will impact you know our children if we have them. They will impact our future. And for me to be an equal participant in these financial decisions, I need a little bit more time. And where I can see some of that time maybe being taken from or, or where I need more partnership is in these other aspects. So again, I'm not a marriage counselor, but I think that that, that open conversation and sort of calling out what can and can't be done and what's feasible for an individual and a couple at a given point in time is, is a start. And then recognizing too, I think this is important research insofar as just really demonstrating that, you know, women primary earners who maybe are experiencing some of these challenges and have felt like they're maybe on their own on an island navigating this, the research shows that, you know, you are not alone. Uh, this is clearly very prevalent. And I think that calling out a problem often is the first step to finding a solution. So even just being able to openly talk about this, I think is a step forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I think, you know, there's some great movements happening in the personal finance space. I'm thinking about the Modern Husbands podcast specifically right now, because they're 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 trying to create a discussion among men in general that to, to be constantly open and having this discussion about personal finances and thinking of a different way than maybe they traditionally have and making sure that they're including their spouse, whether they're same-sex couples or opposite-sex couples in that discussion so that when there is sort of dynamic shift, that that it is addressed. And it's addressed on both sides equitably, right? Obviously, if the woman starts earning more money and, and, and wasn't was traditionally doing the household chores, there should be a dynamic change. But to your point earlier, some of the studies that have come out have shown that men who don't aren't the primary breadwinner, they sort of feel emasculated by society just to some degree, and that affects their personal health. And that conversation doesn't happen nearly enough either. So it's 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 with money being the the consistently in the top three reasons why couples get divorced, constantly having this personal finance discussion of is everything equitable? Are we managing things fairly between both of us? Is a constant conversation that we should have to the benefit of our, our personal finances, as well as to our marriage and, and to the children that we're raising. Absolutely. And I, I think you that is such a good point, which and we've been saying this for many years, you know, this is not just a women's issue, right? Women's financial participation is an issue for all of us as a society, regardless of, you know, who you are, what your gender is, whether you're married, partnered, have children or not, where you are in your life. And 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 I think it's really interesting because our research has shown that everybody seems to agree about that. So the vast majority of both women and men that we've surveyed over the years have said that they believe that only when women are equal participants in the financial decisions that impact them, will we as a society achieve gender equality? So men are also on board and recognize that they have a role to play in this. And then I think the, that that question that just becomes then, you know, how? And, and also, how can we break down some of those, you know, more stereotypical gender expectations so that people don't feel embarrassed or insecure about their earning status as compared to their their partner, right? I mean, the reality is if you are in a couple, regardless of who's earning more or who's earning what, that money that you're making as a couple benefits you as a family. It benefits children. If you have children, it benefits your future, the ability to you know leave a legacy. So regardless of where it's coming from, if it helps you cumulatively achieve your goals as a couple, that's a good thing. And I think it's something, you know, as women continue to earn more and contribute more to their family's incomes, that's something that should be championed and yeah, celebrated. Right. So the question then, of course, is, is how we can actually do that. And there's so many different pieces, you know, to that puzzle. Yeah, I think this kind of goes back to that trust point that you were talking about earlier, right? Couples who can trust each other can have these kind of open conversations. Well, it doesn't matter what your roles are in the relationship. You know, if it's a same-sex relationship or opposite-sex relationship, if you as a couple can trust each other, we know that trust is the beginning of being able to ask these questions or to be able to confidently say to your partner, hey, things have changed and I need some support in the fact that things have changed for me. You know, Whether that's you're working more hours or your job is more stressful or the fact that you are earning more money and where that money should go as a couple to help, help your lifestyle and your life be more full. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. So I think maybe one of the ways we can sort of tap into figuring out how to make that change happen is that uh, your study also found that primary earning women in same-sex couples had more confidence in dealing with their fi personal finances than primary earning women in opposite-sex couples or heterosexual couples. Why do you think that might be? 
I think, again, a lot of it comes down to what we've just been talking about, some of those traditional gender roles that still run deep in many heterosexual couples. You know, I'll give an example. In some of our prior research, we found that the vast majority of men in opposite sex couples said that they thought they knew more about finances than their spouses. And we know that that's not the case. Financial literacy scores between the genders are actually relatively equal, many studies show. So this is not a competence issue whatsoever. But over time, if you have a partner, particularly among heterosexual couples, if you are a woman and your male partner is saying, I got this, or I know what I'm doing more than you do, or I know you don't have time, so I'll handle it, that starts to maybe chip away at some of that confidence, right? Because we gain confidence by feeling like we can do something. We learn by doing. So if you're maybe taking that back seat because someone is telling you, I got this, you're going to feel less experienced, less knowledgeable about making those decisions because you haven't had a seat at the table. So I do think that some of those confidence levels do have to do with some of that, you know, maybe less of that sort of stereotypical gender expectations and some of those less, those conversations are maybe happening less among women in same-sex couples insofar as like some of those data points around husbands thinking they know more. And so that allows greater potential financial engagement, the ability to try things, to make mistakes, to learn, to take a more active role. And then over time, you know, build that confidence maybe without a partner who is challenging what you're doing or insinuating that they would be doing it better if they were doing it themselves or whatever that might be. So I actually think it's it's a really interesting opportunity insofar as for women in same-sex couples as role models, right? If they have these, this higher level of confidence, I think it speaks to the opportunity if we can chip away at some of those traditional gender roles that happen maybe in heterosexual couples. And, and it clearly shows that it leads to that greater level of confidence and also the greater level of it feeling natural be engaged if you are earning that money to be able to make decisions around that that, that income that you are yourself bringing in. Yeah. You know, your, your point about men traditionally reporting that they just simply know more about personal finance than, than everybody else kind of aligns with that data point that we hear, like, I think every year, like men only need to like have like meet 30% exactly. of the qualifications on a job description to apply and women need to be like, meet like 90 to 100%. I'm sure that I, I, I'm screwed the data points up, but that's kind of the general gist. It's just, there's just exactly. this, this general sense of confidence that men, typically straight men seem to have. Yes, I guess I, that's I, easy when the entire society is created around your success. Right? Right. <laughs> so yeah. I'm trying to figure out what's where that came from, but it's probably just because that's how society was created. <laughs> and, and I also, again, I think the historical context around money plays a role. I think, you know, falling into the maybe roles that your parents took, all all of this stuff plays into kind of your own confidence level, your own interest, or even the, the value that you place on being financially involved. I think all of that, you know, plays a role. And I'll, I'll give you an example. In our original research six years ago, we found that 70% of the women that we surveyed believed that women as a whole overestimate what's required to be financially engaged. So clearly, again, there's this huge opportunity. Again, it's not a competence issue whatsoever, but it's a confidence issue. How can we increase confidence? Because we know if you feel more confident in your abilities or in making decisions, you're going to be more inclined to actually take those steps and be involved in those decisions. Right. I, I just, as you were talking, I was just thinking about this whole idea of the stereotype of men are good with numbers and women are bad with numbers, right? This good, I'm good with math and and she's not the kind of the way that that plays out then when it comes to if you are growing up as as a young girl or a young woman and you think to yourself, I'm a woman, so I'm not good with numbers, then you don't want to do things with numbers or you're less likely to get involved. And on top of that, you may feel like you need to know more than you actually do to be able to understand the basics of personal finance and the basics of investing. And because of that, you're always, it, you the, the whole confidence level, right? You just feel like you can't make these decisions and then you shy away from making those kinds of decisions or those kinds of decisions that could benefit you and your household. Absolutely. And, and you know, we even talk about that in the report. There was a, a study in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization a few years ago that found that that stereotype of women being, quote unquote, bad with money 
actually raises financial anxiety in women and furthers yeah. the confidence gap. So there's a lot to be said for that, as well as even just how women are portrayed in the media. I mean, I'm not going to call out any television shows or movies <laughs> or anything like that, but I think we can all think of many in which that is the portrayal of women as being baby bad with money or overspenders or, oh, you know, women buy money, spend it on shoes and all of these types of stereotypes that we hear and see from even a young age. I mean, it's not just for us as adults, but think about young girls and young boys and what they're socialized with and what they see around them on TV or from their friends, their parents, you know, the people in their lives. So, you know, there's a lot of data that shows that there's a very significant amount of media that reflects women as bad with money that I think furthers those stereotypes and then can also actually have real life implications for women's financial confidence or their hesitance around, can I spend X, Y, or Z on these things that I want or that I need? Or should I feel guilty? Or, sh or is there shame involved because of all of these things that are wrapped up in the societal context around money? Yeah. yeah I, and I would guess that would probably also play out, my assumption is, is that because of that, women then are not given the opportunity to make as many mistakes as a man is allowed to make. A woman makes one or two mistakes, and it's like, okay, done. I got, to, I got to take the, the finances away from you. Whereas a man can make a you know a lifetime of mistakes, and they're always going to take the finances away from him because he's a man. And he's supposed to have that role. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, and folks, if you, you're you learn by failure, right? you are listening, I think several of us are rolling our eyes right now. But at that, but that's you know that's the way it is. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, I, I think I think you're 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 right in that in terms of, you know, one of the major reasons that many women in heterosexual couples said that they deferred if they were not involved. Again, that more than half of women in, in heterosexual married couples who have told us they're not as involved in those major financial decisions. A key reason that they cited was wanting to keep the peace. So again, if there's a concern about making a mistake and that causing an argument, you know, that's another barrier to the financial table uh, that starts to be put up if there's a fear of making a mistake or a mistake is made. But look, none of us are experts, right? Especially if you're not a financial advisor, you don't work in this industry yourself. There's so much information, so much jargon, so much to know and understand and follow that, you know, no one's going to get it right 100% of the time. That's why there are financial experts to help you and help you navigate, fill in those gaps, answer questions that you have. But, you know, you only learn by doing. And, and that's also why I think it's good to, you know, be involved in maybe a small mistake means that you're less likely to make a larger mistake, but you mm -hmm. only know if you try. So I think right. that's part of the reason why it's so important to be engaged and, and involved in these decisions, regardless of your you know marital status, life situation. 100%. So I think now it's time for us to put the mirror on ourselves. Because <laughs> uh, your report showed that women breadwinners felt like they're not necessarily supported by the financial services industry, 75% saying that financial services caters to men. And as our audience knows, last year, 48% and this year, 55% of respondents to the Motley Fool Debt-Free Guys LGBTQ plus money study said that they've been discriminated against by somebody in financial services. So what responsibility do we have in, in financial services? Obviously, you're more in corporate, we're more in media. What responsibility do we have to sort of help change the dynamics so that it is more equitable for everybody, not just uh, for straight white men? Absolutely. Well, look, I think it is no secret that there's still room for improvement among our financial services industry. I think the data in our report, as well as a lot of the industry data, speaks for itself in that way. But I also think it provides a tremendous opportunity, right? And I know I mentioned this before, but I, I really believe that you can't fix a problem until you openly acknowledge it and call it out. And that's really what we've tried to do with this research, you know, not keep it a secret or, or hide the fact that there's still significant work that needs to be done, but to say like, hey, we're willing to do the work and what is it going to take to actually get there? So I think that's sort of step one or even step zero, you could say. And then I think another piece actually starts with understanding what are the unique financial needs of whether it's women breadwinners and same-sex couples, LGBTQ plus investors, women who are you know entrepreneurs or business owners, wh whoever you might be. Each of us have individual needs. You can't take a broad brush stroke to financial advice. And so I think part of that also comes down to understanding the unique financial priorities that women breadwinners cite. And actually, interestingly, it was fairly similar across the board for women breadwinners in both heterosexual and same-sex couples. Um, and those top financial priorities that we heard included retirement planning, budgeting, tax planning, 
maintaining an emergency fund, and long-term care planning. So again, we heard that loud and clear. So then, of course, the, the question becomes, so how do we actually do that? How do we serve these investors in a better way? How do we make sure that they feel included in the conversation, in what our industry has to offer. And and look, I can't speak to every single firm or every single advisor in our industry. There are tens of thousands of advisors, hundreds and hundreds of firms, you know, wirehouses, independent firms, big, small, digital, everything. So I also think it speaks to the importance of really trying to find the right advisor, the same way you try to find the right doctor or the right accountant or the right attorney or or all of the people that you turn to for advice and expertise in your life. Some may not be a fit. Some might have more work to do. And then there are others that are really doing it well. So I would encourage everyone to really think about and, and take the time to interview the advisors that you're considering working with. Ask them questions, level set on what you're looking for, what you expect, what your goals are. And if you don't feel like you're being seen, go to someone else. And I think that that's really important. And I also think that that'll cause more of a seismic shift because people will start to see if I'm not doing this in the right way, I'm losing business and I'm losing the opportunity to serve a greater percentage of of the population. So I think it starts by calling out the problem, you know, making a commitment to trying to fix it, making a commitment to trying to understand the unique needs of the individuals that we serve and not taking that sort of traditional cookie cutter approach that maybe worked, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So that's kind of how I would suggest starting in terms of how we can try to bridge some of those gaps and, and close close some of those gaps as well. I mean, I want to tap into what you just a comment that you just made there. We, David and I still have our, our tentacles in some brokerage firms across the country, some very large ones. And we know of some very misogynistic occurrences that are that are taking place. I'm curious what your percept your response is to those financial advisors and their bosses, the branch managers and all sorts, who are fine with the status quo, who feel like the outreach to other demographics, whether it's women, LGBTQ plus people, whomever, is more performative and that there's not really a bottom line value to reaching out to those communities. What would your response to, to that be? I think it's clear the data speaks for itself that that would be the wrong approach, right? More wealth is going into more diverse hands each and every day. And I think if you are not thinking about that, then your business is not going to move forward in a way that keeps pace with the way that our economy is going and the way that our inclusive economy is destined toward. So I do think, look, we can't change all behaviors in anything that we do, whether it's around more inclusive financial advice, whether it's in medical care, whether it's in you know marketing, all of the different things and, and services that we interact with each and every day are not always going to get it right. We can only control what we can control. And I'm, I'm proud that at UBS, we're making this a priority and really trying to do the right thing, not just in the research that we publish or the content that we produce, but also in the training that we provide to our advisors and the conversations that we're having, you know, all the way from, you know, the highest levels of leadership down to that individual advisor or to my team or the wonderful teams that I work with. But I, I think that, you know, from a pure business perspective, if you want to talk about the numbers and sense, there's a lot of data that shows that if you are not serving a diverse population, your business is not going to succeed at the same rate as those advisors who do recognize the importance of this. And I also think even just beyond the business argument, there's the broader argument around what do we want our society to look like? Our businesses should reflect the communities where we live, work, and serve. And I, I hope that that framework and that mindset continues to spread. I, I do see tremendous progress even in the you know 12 or so years that I've been in this industry. But I do think advisors are really missing out if they are you know taking that more traditional approach and not paying attention to this. Because again, the demographic trends bear out. Women tend to live longer than men. Divorce rates in this country hover just below 50%. Rates of marriage are decreasing. More and more women are choosing to remain single. More and more women are having more wealth than ever before. All of these different things are leading to the fact that if we are not actively addressing these demographic changes, we'll fall behind. So I hope that that in itself is a catalyst, aside from, of course, the obvious, which is that it's the right thing to do. Are you running for office? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm just really passionate. About, I'm really passionate about this. I've been doing it for, you know, six, seven years. I, I live, breathe, and speak the importance of women's financial empowerment. And I think, look, we're not ever going to get 100% 
participation and belief in this. But if we can just even change one person's perspective or one advisor's perspective or one firm's perspective each day, each month, each year that we've been doing this research, then that's that's progress, right? It's sort of that hand-to-hand combat, like boots on the ground, kicking down doors way of trying to actually change, you know, change this dynamic and, and continue to move our industry in the direction that we we hope it will go in. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's part of the reason why John and I appreciate that you you did this. And and to be honest, when you first reached out to us and shared the study with us, our first question was, was it inclusive of LGBT people? And we were really excited that the fact that it was. And it speaks to your point, right? Unless we start to understand what the data is telling us, mm-hmm. then we cannot basically have the tools and resources at our hands to confront the conversations of people who are saying, let's just stick with the way it used to be. If you Mm want to stick with the way it used to be, that's fine. But know that that's not the way things are today. And you will slowly fall behind. I will say to your comment, John, about individuals that we know or branch managers or even individuals higher up in organizations more often than not, the individuals that we're talking about are individuals who probably have a very short-sighted time frame or short-sighted mindset because of their time frame left in the industry. These are mostly men who are more most likely going to be gone from the industry in the next 10 to 15 years. So for them, making changes isn't going to have a substantial impact on their financial future. Right. It's having an impact on their financial present, and they're okay with their financial present. Younger financial advisors, younger firms who are thinking forward, those are the individuals and the firms that are actually seeing the data and responding to it in the way that they need to, to become the leaders that we will be looking to in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Absolutely. And I think you want, you know, certainly we want to try to move progress forward across everyone, but I think you want to really look at that kind of coalition of the willing, right? Who sees this data and recognizes the importance of it and recognizes the cultural shifts, business shifts, shifts in their practice that need to occur to really meet these evolving needs of a more diverse uh, consumer base. And that that being said, you know, I work with advisors across the country at UBS, wonderful advisors, male and female, rising gen, advisors who have been in this business for you know, 30, 40, even 50 years. And there are a lot of advisors who are doing this right and who really want to do the right thing. Again, as with any industry, there's never going to be, you know, 100% perfect behavior or 100%, you know, perfect buy-in or or involvement in what, you know, the way that you're hoping to move and the wave that you want to kind of shift. But I think we have to recognize the progress that we've made, but also how we can continue to make progress. And certainly, I think that means, you know, thinking about the next generation of our industry, the next generation of advisors, and also of investors, right? Because they're going to have different expectations for what they look for. And they'll talk and walk with their feet if they don't feel like they're getting that level of service and that individualized response from the person sitting across the table from them. Yeah. Yeah. What's that data? Like 80% of women after their husband pass away, go to a new financial advisor because the financial advisor is is a 60? 60 to 70% either after divorce or after the loss of a spouse will switch advisors. I mean, that's pretty staggering. That's a very high percentage. Yeah. It means you're not doing your job. Right. Well, and, and, and folks, for those of you who are listening, that's, you know, as Carrie pointed out, we have to be completely comfortable with thinking to ourselves, I'm not getting what I need from this person. This is a, this is a non-functioning, this is a toxic or sometimes maybe just a dysfunctional relationship that I have with my financial advisor or financial institution. It's okay. It's not easy. I mean, it, you know, it takes a little bit of work, but to pick up and move to another firm, that is 100% okay for you, your financial well-being and your mental health. Yeah, one to two percent is a lot to pay to get an award. <laughs> yeah, and I and I I also think it has to be consistent, right? Obviously, you need to say the right things and you know institute the right things culturally, even within your own workforce. Have the right policies, benefits, opportunities in place, but also it, it it's not just sort of a one and done. You know, we don't just publish one piece of research and then 
that's it, right? We've been publishing this research now for six years, just like we published this piece a few months ago focused on women and couples, right? Because we're looking at breadwinners, which implies a couple. Right now, we're now pivoting and working on research focused on single women that we're going to come out with later this fall, again, in an effort to be as inclusive as possible and continuing that commitment as opposed to just sort of a check the box. Oh, we put out this piece and you know mm-hmm. we showed that we're focused on this and that's it. It's a constant effort. I mean, even a few weeks after we published this piece, for example, UBS also published a terrific piece uh, called Planning for the LGBTQ Family that talks all about key considerations for marriage for LGBTQ plus couples, planning ideas for unmarried LGBTQ plus couples, as well as family planning considerations for the LGBTQ couple. And so, again, it's that constant, continued commitment. The work doesn't you know, happen overnight. It takes a lot and it takes a concerted firm-wide effort from many different teams and individuals. And you have to be willing to, to put in the work and to kind of keep pushing forward with not just the research that you do, but everything that then backs it up from a strategic perspective. I'm sure everything you just said there is great, but all I heard was single ladies. <laughs> now I've got Beyonce in my head. <laughs> no, but I, I, what I will say is this is one of those indications to us folks that this is not performative work that companies are doing, right? When we see companies going out and being inclusive when they're doing the studies, doing specific studies about our community, trying to understand what are the, the needs of, of the individuals of the community are, that's what all of us really want, right? We don't want the, we all love the float at the pride parade, but what we really want is how can you help me improve my life? That's why we Mm -hmm. engage with financial institutions is how can you help me improve my life? And these are the companies that are shining a light on our needs and our, our interests so that they can help. That's exactly, exactly right. So to wind this down, what do you hope women and also financial advisors maybe do in response to the data from this particular study? Sure. I'll start with the the financial advisors first, because I, I do think that the report offers some some key sort of suggestions and considerations for how to think about this research and then ultimately take action from it. And that includes, you know, really seeking to understand the family income dynamics first, and then facilitating conversations that include each partner equally in the relationship. So again, you know, understanding you know, who's earning what, how that's contributing to the household income, not making assumptions about where that income is coming from. I'll tell a brief story on that just really quickly. We have a wonderful advisor in Boston, and she recently told me that she won a significant amount of business from a couple because she was the only advisor that they interviewed across many different firms who actually said, tell me about your wealth. How did you build it? How did you accumulate it? Where did it come from? And didn't just assume that the wealth was the husband's because it actually... the wife was the breadwinner and was extremely successful and had created most of that wealth through her earnings. And so without nice. you know, t- making an assumption, allowing biases to infiltrate the conversation, she approached it by setting that aside and she won the business. So I think that's nice. a very clear example of that. I would say, again, that goes to kind of the second point, which would be setting those assumptions aside, trying to reduce even the unconscious or unintentional bias. Even if, you know, maybe many of your clients look a certain way, it doesn't mean that all of them are going to look a certain way. And so I think that means you need to listen to the unique needs of women breadwinners. And again, this applies to all investors. I would say the third is really looking for ways to simplify ease or or automate certain services to reduce that time burden of financial engagement that we heard is a barrier to entry for so many women. And then lastly, again, addressing financial engagement through the lens of a comprehensive goals-based financial planning approach that really gets to the heart of who someone is, what's most important to them, what are their values, what do they hope to achieve, and then customizes that in a more individualized way that really meets them where they are. And then in terms of for for anyone reading this, anyone tuning in today, I think, you know, financial engagement is so critically important in terms of being able to have a say in the major financial decisions that impact us, our loved ones, our futures. The reality is whether we like it or not, money plays an integral role in everything that we do from our ability to, you know, put a roof over our heads, to pay for unforeseen medical costs, to put kids through college or care for aging loved ones, or, you know, just buy that dream home you've always wanted, whatever it might be. And I would say it's never too late 
or too early to take that first or next step toward financial engagement in a way that works for you, whether that means hiring an advisor if you've been meaning to do that or switching advisors if you haven't felt like you've gotten the right advice and service that you've been looking for, Uh, maybe meeting with your advisor if that's something you haven't done in a while, revisiting that financial plan, have your circumstances changed. Have there been life events that impact your financial situation? Do you have the proper documentation in place in the event of the unexpected? Are you having those difficult but important conversations with a partner or spouse if you are in a committed relationship around money? And, and you don't have to do it all at once, right? But you know, taking those steps, maybe one day it's making sure if you have an employer-sponsored 401k that you are putting in enough to get that company match. Or it might mean actually you know, downloading your statements from your credit card and looking at your spending to make sure that you're not overspending in a given year or really focusing on building up that emergency fund. Whatever it might be, I think you know, the hope through this research, again, also is that women breadwinners see that they're not alone in some of these challenges, that they're not you know, on an island that they don't have to go through this process alone either. And there are experts that can and really want to help them as well as excellent resources available, you know, online that are free and readily available in a way that however you like to learn, whether that's through videos or podcasts or books or gamification, you know, but taking that first or next step, I think is is so important, regardless of maybe, you know, where you are or what you've been doing in the past, you can still mm-hmm. start today. Absolutely. Love all that. So how can our listeners and viewers uh, connect with UBS specifically if they're interested uh, in improving or changing their investing? Yeah, absolutely. So I would encourage everyone, if you'd like to read the latest on your worth report that we've been talking about, any of the prior research that I've mentioned or any of the other content that we have, uh, you can visit us on uh, online at ubs.com forward slash women. Very easy to remember, ubs.com slash women. And there you'll find tons of resources, educational materials on all different financial topics, as well as an opportunity to look for and engage with a financial advisor if that's something that you're looking to do. And that's a great starting point, again, to access some of the other content that I mentioned of that new piece, Planning for the LGBTQ Plus Family, as well as some of the resources from some of my colleagues and, and other business areas that I think are really relevant. We have an entire business area devoted to business owners and entrepreneurs, to multicultural investors, to multi-generational families, to rising gen. Uh, so again, if you go to ubs.com slash women, that's a great place to start to access all of our content or to consider you know, working with or, or speaking to a UBS advisor. Nice. And for our listeners and viewers, if you're on the Queer Money newsletter, we'll have that link to uh, all those different studies linked to in our show notes. So make sure you sign up for that. Harry, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this information. Thank you to UBS for for doing this study and the other studies that that you're doing. We appreciate uh, all the time and effort that you're putting into trying to make investing and personal finance more equitable for more people. Well, thank you so much, John and David, for having me on the podcast today. It's been great to be with you and to have this important conversation. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Carrie, for a great interview and to UBS for conducting this helpful study. Thank you to our listeners and viewers for joining us for another episode. Remember to subscribe to the Queer Money Podcast newsletter. You can get that in your podcast player or in the description of this YouTube video below. That way you can get this week's Queer Money Takeaway, how you can connect with UBS and the links to UBS study, plus another great tip on how you can reach financial independence faster. Then join us this Thursday when we share the most affordable LGBTQ plus friendly city to live in in Maine. And next Tuesday, when we talk with financial advisor and founder Kellyanne Winget about how and why more of us should consider investing in alternative investments and private equity. Thank you and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.